Welcome to Opus Private Clients Wealth Style Podcast. All of the material discussed on our podcasts have specific themes, and that's to move your wealth and lifestyle forward, increase your purpose, and provide you with clarity and confidence. Opus's mantra is always forward. We have found that regardless of one's wealth, moving your lifestyle forward is the number one priority for our clients. On our podcast, we'll share our rich 35 years of experience in designing strategies, share clients' experiences, and introduce resources that have positively impacted our clients. We trust that you will enjoy our direct, transparent, and realistic approach to positively impacting the quality of you and your family's lives. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to the Opus Private Client Wealth Style Podcast. My name is Yvonne Watanabe. I'll be your host today. Uh, joined with me is uh, my partner, Russ Carpentieri. What's going on, Russ? Everything's great, Yvonne. Awesome. And we have a fantastic guest on today, Mark Klein, uh, partner and chairman of the firm of Hodgson & Russ. Uh, good morning, Mark. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. So Mark is has one of the most impressive resumes that I've ever read, so I'm going to try to keep it concise. Mark has more than 35 years of experience in federal, multi-state, state, and local taxation, has represented a number of Fortune 500 firms and uh, and a number of wealthy individuals on the Forbes 400 list. So um, beyond that, best lawyers in America for 2021, Lawyer of the Year. So, you know, huge accolades, Mark. We're, we're very, very excited to have you on. Um, just to kind of set the stage, so what we're seeing today, uh, clients and companies are, are open to living and working in new states and even new countries. And we wanted to have you on to share some insights on how to make those transitions effectively and by tax standards. So with that in mind, uh, Russ, why don't we kick it off? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Yvonne. So, Mark, you know, we, we're hearing a lot from our clients saying, you know, I'm moving to a state, you know, maybe it's Florida, Texas, Tennessee, that has a, a lower or no taxes. And the next thing they say is, um, I think I can do six months in a day to become a resident. Can you just share with us why that's not exactly uh, accurate or the case and what process uh, things they need to be thinking of when migrating to you know, an alternate state? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the issue is the fact that most states are desperate for revenue and they're not going to let people extricate themselves without kicking and screaming. And the law, unfortunately, is on the state's side. So basically the way it works is this. When you move or purport to move to another jurisdiction, another state, whatever, you're going to be scrutinized if you're audited by a fairly nice man or woman who works for the, the government of the state as a civil servant. And their worldview is the one that they sort of apply to the rest of the world. And so what does an auditor do when they move to, I don't know, let's say Florida? Well, they sell their place up north. They put everything they own in a giant truck. The truck, excuse me, the truck travels down to Florida. It unpacks in a new home and off we go. And so anything that is outside of that norm from an auditor's perspective raises questions. Questions such as, well, gee, did you really leave the northern or wherever state because you kept a place there? I mean, who does that? Um, did you move all your stuff in a big moving van? And I'm sure it, it wouldn't surprise uh, you guys to know that we have a number of clients who can afford television sets in their old homes and 
in their new homes. You know, one family with almost two, two or more TVs. It's amazing. And so they don't need to move a bunch of stuff. But it makes it more difficult when the auditor says, okay, you moved to such and such. Tell me about, you know, when did you move your stuff? And then you start to explain that you don't really need to move stuff. I think the misconception about the 183-day rule is probably one of the more uh, difficult ones to uh, explain to clients because the rule works as follows. Most states have a rule that says if you happen to be in their state more than 183 days and you have a house there, an apartment, an abode, some place to hang out, you instantly lose. It's an automatic loss. The problem is the converse does not apply. So if you are out of the state less than 183, it does not mean you win. It just means you don't instantly lose. And so the real question is what does it take to really establish yourself as a non-resident of your original state? And most states have what they call a burden of proof, meaning that just like in most tax cases, you are guilty until you prove yourself innocent. And the rules of the states basically say you not only have to prove yourself innocent, but you have to prove yourself innocent by, quote, clear and convincing evidence, whatever the heck that means. And while I don't know exactly what that means, I do know what it doesn't mean. And going back initially to the 183-day question, if you spend 183 days in your old state or 182 days and 183 days in your new state, how in the world is that clear and convincing? 50-50, one-to-one, not clear and convincing at all. There, there is a ratio, right, until you kind of get the, the, the golden uh, stamp of approval. Can you just talk a little bit about the timing and what someone should expect throughout that process until the state does deem them no longer a resident? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, one of the things to think about is exactly the date that you become a non-resident. Most states have a rule that says if during any calendar year, you're physically in the state more than the 183 days that we talked about, and you continue to have a home, you're going to lose. So if we're talking about August of 2021, if you've been in, I'll just use New York as an example, if you've already been in New York all year, um, and now tomorrow you move to Florida, but you keep your place back in New York, you're going to lose the case because you've already triggered the 183 days. Believe it or not, uh, even though you change your domicile, uh, you cannot change your tax residency. It's too late unless you've been traveling earlier in the year. But the other thing to think about is in order to show that you've really moved, the states require two things. You've got to not only leave your old state, but you have to land in the new state. And with uh, the Olympics still on our mind, I can tell you, you have to stick the landing. So a lot of people, you know, leave for a low or no tax state now. They hopefully trigger a nice liquidity event, but then in a year or two, they come back. That's a real problem because auditors have phenomenal 2020 hindsight. And they're going to say, you know, when you left for Tennessee, did you really leave, you know, did you really stick that landing? And the answer is, well, if you're being audited and you're already back in New York or wherever, that's going to be a problem. And that goes, you know, to that whole golden ticket. If I were to decide to change my residence today, I won't be reporting that to a state until as late as October of next year. 
right? You don't report it the day you leave. You wait till you file your tax return, which could be April 15th of next year or as late as October. So it's a full year before you've even told the state you are gone. Most states then have three years to do an audit. So if by the time they start their audit, you're already back, that's a problem. But I think, Russ, you did mention one of the things that we do like about changing residency is that once you are audited and once it's been determined that you did in fact move, then we call that the golden ticket. Because just like this whole burden of proof where you have to prove that you move by clear and convincing evidence, once there's a determination that you're not a resident, the states would have to prove you moved back. And they would have to prove it by clear and convincing evidence. They would have to prove they knew your intentions better than you did. So once you get that golden ticket, then you are considered a non-resident. And then you can come back up to 183 days uh, without having a problem. Although one more thing I want to say, I know a lot of people wonder about, you know, well, how do they really count the days? And, you know, I, what I'll do is, you know, I'll pay cash. I won't use Easy Pass. I won't use my credit card. It's really a very strange rule, but for purposes of this 183-day test, five minutes is a day, right? You spend one night in your old apartment, that's two days. The night you put your head on the pillow, the morning you woke up. The other thing auditors do is they don't really follow credit cards or Easy Pass or all the stuff they used to follow. They're going to do a very simple thing. They're going to pull your cell records and identify where you were every minute of every day. People often forget their wallets, but nobody forgets their cell phone. So, Mark, the uh, one of the software programs that are out on the market, Mineo, uh, seems to be a really great tracking tool because it doesn't tower jump. It's it's fairly accurate. Is that an um, you know that seems to be a very successful proof or you know that then the historical cell phone bills that you know you could land in uh, new york and as you're driving up north all of a sudden it pings you somewhere else and there's confusion can you just maybe take 20 seconds and kind of chat about that well i'm a lawyer i can't take 20 seconds ever it's just not in my blood <laughs> but but, I, but i'll try my best i mean all you're right, correct the, 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 <laughs> thank you the, i mean you're right the problem is you know you get somebody who says they weren't in new york they were driving up the palisades parkway in new jersey and yet the cell phone is pinging over the hudson river uh, cell phones look for the strongest tower not necessarily the closest maneo which happened close to my heart because I, I worked with the guys to help develop it and i don't get a commission if anybody signs up i like maneo because you're right it's sits in the background it uses GPS so it can identify your physical location usually within you know a hundred meters or so and that's really strong and I guess the other thing is uh, we have people who work for us who used to be residency auditors and they use this all the time in audits and we've had a heck of a great success rating using Maneo so uh, I'm, I'm not trying to give them a public service announcement but uh, I do think it's a great tool yeah, I, I think so, too. So, you know, our clients are pretty smart. And when we kind of talk to them about this criteria, they kind of, you know, and they say, well, I really don't want to sell my house. So I'm just going to put it in a trust. I'm going to sell it to the trust. Can you just chat a little bit about, you know, the little things that people think they can do to kind of skate the issue? But again, you know, they just don't work or they're not as effective. 
Yeah, I mean, look, auditors are very smart. They've been doing these things for years. And the question when you change your residence is the, the verb, what changed? So in the old days, you used to live at, you know, 123 Happy Lane in Massapequa, New York. And now, you know, you've sold the house to your kids or to a trust or to the dog or to some entity. And that's interesting. But the auditor will say, okay, in the old days when you were a New Yorker, where did you used to live? Oh, 123 Happy Lane in Massapequa. Okay, now that you're a Floridian, where do you come when you come back? 123 Happy Lane, Massapequa. So what's changed? So the ownership is fairly meaningless. What New York really looks at is a practical analysis of your living quarters. Uh, where did you used to go? Where did you used to be? And when you come back, where do you go? And, you know, do you got a key to get in someplace? So the ownership is really irrelevant. And I think what's interesting in my mind is that some of the more uh, nuanced issues that auditors focus on. So we all know that, you know, we look at where you're physically located, we look at this, we look at that. Here's what auditors look at though. So you're in some, let's say you decide to move to Montana and God forbid you or a family member has some medical issue. I don't think anyone would begrudge you going back to Los Angeles or New York City, Boston, wherever you're from, and getting some of the best medical care in the world. You're entitled to that, and that doesn't make you a resident of the old state. But who in their right mind would travel 2,000 miles out of their way to get their teeth cleaned? That's the kind of thing you do when you're home. So that is not something a lot of people think about, but it's a really good indicator. Another thing is, uh, if we're ever able to travel internationally again, you know, you go on a nice holiday for a few weeks or a month. You know where most people go after a nice long vacation? They tend to go home. It's very unusual for someone to go on a lengthy vacation and then decide, okay, now let's go on vacation. They go home. So there's some qualitative aspects to where you spend your time, not just counting the days. Got it. So, you know, obviously, if you truly have the intent to reestablish residency in another state, there are things that you should be doing. You should be changing the address of your uh, brokerage accounts, your bank accounts, your credit cards, uh, voter registration. You vote because when you're home, you would vote theoretically, and you should you should vote. Um, and by the way, if I could interrupt you for one second, it's more important that you vote for the local dog catcher than it is for the president because everybody votes for the president regardless of where they're domiciled, but only people who live in a community really care about the county clerk or the dog catcher. So just wanted to give you a little right. color on that. Yeah. Uh, so all those things of true relocation are critical as you go through this. And I've seen checklists, have your wills redone, uh, have a doctor, a dent, all those things which are, are normal. And I think that's just best practice. And, you know, what we always want to share with our audience is there are ways to go about things. But if you truly have an intent, you need to follow the guidance of, of a you know, great professional like you uh, and um, as well as things that you should be should be doing so is there anything else um, that you you know in this master checklist uh, which we've seen many times is there anything like really gating or is it all that you really need to do all the things well it, you know you should do as much as you can the problem with residency is that the tax department and anyone who scrutinizes it like a court, we're trying to divine your intention. Did you move to this new location with the intention to make it your home, or are you simply there seasonally, or are you there temporarily, etc.? Well, we can't read your mind. 
So all we can do is look at the external indicia of what you're doing to see if it reflects what you told us you were thinking. So should you fill out an affidavit of domicile and register to vote and get the homestead exemption and the driver's license? Absolutely. Does it mean you win your case? Absolutely not. There is a, again, another misconception that if I just fill out pieces of paper, I can change my residence. And I can assure you that is not the case. All it means is that you're really good at filling out pieces of paper. We look at the way you live your life. So I think the answer to your question is you must do both. You should also always do the paperwork. It's, there's no downside to it. In fact, I've seen auditors, you know, say, aha, you know, you, you move to wherever, but you never registered to vote there. How can you say you're a resident? But I've never seen an auditor say, well, if, if you're resident, if you're, you know, filing your, your uh, returns or you're voting in, you know, Tennessee, you must be a Tennessee resident. It doesn't work that way. They're fairly not uninterested in that. What you really need to do is look at what most auditors focus on. And really, there's only five things that matter more than anything else. You know, we look at your housing situation. You know, we assume that your bigger, better, nicer home is the one you live in. If you'd like to lose a case very quickly, you keep your big, beautiful home in Connecticut and you rent a condo in Boca. Uh, you know, you own big and beautiful up north, you rent down south. That's not really reflecting your commitment to Florida. So we look at home. We look at where your business is located. The assumption is most people live within some general proximity of their, their business. Now, that can be rebutted. Uh, if I were, let's say, a Floridian and I were working, I was working in California, um, if I go to California to commute, which is a heck of a commute, the question would be, okay, well, where is my wife? Where are my kids? Because most families wait at home when the other spouse is traveling for business. That's a real good indicator. The third thing we look at is how many nights you sleep in your bed at home. There are people who commute to Boston, to New York City, to Los Angeles that live all over the place, right? There's a lot of people from New Jersey, Connecticut who commute into New York City, and yet we don't tax them as city residents, even though they're there every single day. How is that possible? Because they're not city residents. Well, how do I know if they're there every single day? Well, because at six o'clock, they go home. They go to their families, they go home to sleep. So we look at where you're sleeping. We The fourth thing we look at is what they call the near and dear test. We ask kids who are being audited, uh, which you should never let your taxpayer talk to the auditor, but they, they used to ask kids, where do you keep your teddy bear? Where are your most valuable possessions? We assume most people live near their valuable stuff. Um, and whether it's valuable from a financial standpoint or even sentimental, you know, grandma's heirloom china, um, you know, pictures of the kids growing up. We assume people have their stuff. That's why it would be completely inconsistent for a Floridian to keep a safe deposit box in their old home in New Jersey. Who keeps their most valuable stuff with them on vacation? It doesn't make sense. And then the last thing we look at, uh, the location of the rest of your family. We assume married people share a life and share a domicile. We assume that parents have the same domicile as their children. And I gotta tell you, one of the biggest mistakes we're seeing right now are people who fled New York City during the pandemic. They're currently living in the Hamptons. They've been there since March of 2020 with no immediate intention to return, maybe in a year or and so they take the position that they don't owe New York City taxes because they've been in the Hamptons since March of 2020. The problem is they've had the place in the Hamptons forever and the kids are still enrolled in New York City schools. That's really a tough one. 
because we would assume the kids go to school in their home area. They tend not to go to school in New York City unless there's an intention to return to New York City, in which case you lose your case. Got it. Last question I have is, we have clients that, again, their intent is to be, let's say, in Palm Beach, but they have a business in New York, and maybe they're not running it, or they have real estate in New York, commercial real estate. Just talk about the connection or the link or the issue with that, if there is one. Sure, yeah. As I mentioned, uh, you know, one of the primary factors, those, one of those top five, is your business connection. And you can be involved in 137 limited partnerships as a passive investor. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about active business involvement where you're hiring and firing and, and involved in business activities. That's a strong connection to your home. And there's lots of cases in the Northeast in particular that say if your strongest connections are in you know, one of the Northeast states, that's a real big indicator of where your home is. Again, if you tell me that your spouse and children are, are in Florida while you come back to do whatever you have to do, uh, that's, that's fine. The issue with respect to your domicile is it's the place you go when you don't have to be anywhere else, right? If I live in Florida and I have to come back for business, then I come back, I do what I have to do, but then when I'm done, I go home. So uh, that's one of the strong indicators though. So you want to try to extricate yourself from business or get somebody else to manage the business. Maybe uh, you can be more of an advisor, maybe a chairman emeritus, something like that, but trying to reduce, or even better, have the business open an office for you in Palm Beach or West Palm or something, uh, that's an even better. Right. Well, one other question that did come to mind as you were speaking is, can you determine or just kind of bifurcate the different assets or, or income sources and what would be subject to and not subject to, like pension, uh, retirement income, things of that nature? Sure. Well, it depends on the state. But Connecticut and New York have this rule that says if you're working from home in a place, well, it doesn't matter where your home is, you know, Florida, wherever, that those states will still tax your W-2 wages even though you're not working in the northern state. It's called the convenience rule, and it's really uh, surprising to a lot of people. As far as is uh, intangible income, you know, interest or dividends or capital gains, only your home state can tax those. So if you are uh, a Floridian, even if you're coming to New York a bunch, those assets don't get taxable or aren't not taxable as long as you're not a resident of the northern state. As long as you're a Floridian, interest, dividends, cap gains are safe. Pensions are also generally safe if you are a, I, mean, I keep using Florida because it's a no-tax state, but the same rules apply to, to any state really. And that's because there's actually a piece of federal legislation that was passed about 20 years ago that says no state can tax a non-resident on their pension. And that applies to qualified pensions, it applies to you know IRAs, 401ks, uh, all that kind of stuff, and even some non-qualifieds, uh, which is probably more, more detail than you want to know. But the reason for that was, you know, when you think about an IRA or a 401k or whatever, those are deferred compensation plans, right? I'm, I'm not going to pay tax today. I'm going to pay tax when I take the money out. Well, states like New York were saying, look, you put all this money in the 401k when you were a New Yorker. You didn't pay tax on it when you were a New Yorker, and now you've deferred that tax. You've moved to Florida, so now even though you're a Floridian and you never come back to New York, we want to tax you on your distributions. Uh, this federal law prohibits that. 
uh, and says that no state can tax a non-resident on those kinds of things. The, the other thing that you know causes people some concern are you know incentive stock options, non-qualified stock options. Those things can be taxable even when the gain is triggered by a non-resident if some of the time that, that you created the value, in other words, once the options are granted to you, if you're working in you know, New York, from the time they're granted until they vest, uh, New York says that's compensatory because those options wind up in your W-2. And we look to see what percentage of the time did you work in New York during the period where those options were first granted until they vest. So even though you're now a Floridian and you exercise them, New York says you, quote, earned them in New York and New York State, not city, uh, New York State will still tax them. Got it. Well, Mark, thank you so much um, for answering all of my questions and uh, really appreciate having you on. Yeah, Mark, before we let you go, if somebody makes the decision to to change res residency, at what point in the process should they contact you or someone like you uh, to help them through that process? Yeah, quite frankly, I always like it sooner rather than later, only because it's hard to unring a bell, right? Once you make a misstep, uh, you can't take it back. So we always try to get folks involved planning ahead of time because, yeah, you are, you know, you're, the assumption of your question is that probably most people don't get us involved until they're audited. And then, you know, you're stuck with the facts that they existed. You're, you're stuck with what you're stuck with. And I can't tell you how often I take my hand against my forehead to say, oh, no, why did you do such and such? Or why didn't you do this or that? So, yeah, it's always better to plan ahead. Great. And, and where can the audience find you? Where, they, where can they contact you if they have questions or, or want to, to hire you in the firm? Yeah, sure. I'm always happy to answer questions. Just don't give me your name. So if I'm not, I won't provide legal advice uh, so that uh, my male practice carrier won't get upset. But if, yeah, if you want to hire us, that's even better. But you can always contact me uh, through my firm's website or just email. It's mkline, as in Mark. So M-K-L-E-I-N, at, and that's my firm name is Hodgson Russ, H-O-D-G-S-O-N-R-U-S-S dot com. mkline at HodgsonRuss.com. Mark, we really, really appreciate the time. Thanks so much for uh, all of your insights and, and candor. Uh, we, we know that the audience is gonna have a ton to take away. Uh, so thank you so much for joining. My pleasure, thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. And for you, the listening audience, thank you so much for tuning in. Please click subscribe below to be notified when we have a future podcast uh, released. Talk to you soon, be well. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Style Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or Opus Private Client, and opinions stated are their own. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting, or relocation advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Yvonne Watanabe and Russell Carpentieri are registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not affiliated or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. 
Opus Private Client, LLC, is not registered in any state or with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission as a registered investment advisor. Yvonne's California Insurance License Number 0H44206. Russell's California Insurance License Number 0C72511. Compliance Approval 2021-124581. Expires July of 2023.